J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings is the quintessential book of modern fantasy. But his greater work in terms of scope and in terms of focus is the Silmarillion. Long time it has been a staple of nerd culture to have read this book and known it. But for those of you who haven't, I'm going to give you a brief overview of the story of the elves, with a focus on a particular city. The gods of Tolkien's universe are, are known as the Valar. There are 13 of them, and one of them, Melkor, is the one who turns creation to his own desires, corrupts it, and wishes to bring upon it his own desire rather than that which is good. Among the creations of the other Valar are the elves, which Melkor hates. The elves are called to Valinor, the home of the gods, and there live with them and learn many things, create many beautiful things as well. However, one of the creations, which are the sons of one of the great houses of the elves make, are called the Silmarils, these great gemstones, three great gems, through which the light of creation glistens. Melkor steals them, though, and takes them far away, away from Valinor to, to Middle-earth, where he has his home and makes his stronghold. The elves abandon the shores of Valinor to go and wage war against Melkor for their possessions, for their Silmarils, and it is indeed these jewels for which the Silmarillion is named. They suffer much, not only in their journey away from their home in Valinor, but also in the wars that they fight against Melkor, who will now henceforth be known as Morgoth. They build great cities and defend them against the wiles of Morgoth, but one by one they all fall into ruin and despair. The greatest of these cities is the hidden city of Gondolin, it is a city hidden away in the mountains. Its path is unknown to any, and its ways are guarded by ancient spells, so that none may come upon it, so that they may dwell securely and preserve what is theirs. It is safe from attack, and so from it they send out messengers to go down the river to the sea, and from the sea sail westward toward Valinor, in the hopes that one of their kind may reach those shores and bring this tale of their woe, of the woe of all elves, to the ears of the Valar, so that they may come and put an end to the works of Morgoth. However, as time passes, and no messenger reaches the western shores, they become content, hiding away in their 
city in the mountains. And they forget the beauty of Valinor, overwhelmed with the beauty of Gondolin. Out of paranoia and fear that one of their messengers may lead back to their home, they no longer send anyone to the oceans, no more to the mouth of Sirion. And they shut themselves in their mountain strongholds and trust in their own might and strength to keep them safe. Today I'm going to talk about conservatism. Now it's a bit of a it's a bit of a jump cut, but I'll uh, complete the story at the end. The word conservative, by definition, means tending to oppose change or favoring traditional values. I've been thinking a lot about this word. What does it mean? Why have I why have I used this word? Why why does it exist? And so, in order to do so, I had to question: What would it mean right now? to oppose change? What things would I be implicitly supporting? What values have become traditional in modern culture, whether we like it or not? What are we conserving if we call ourselves conservative? What am I conserving if I do so? The greatest, the chief, would be the military-industrial complex, that glorious war machine. The second, the welfare state, that means by which we ensure that those less fortunate never have to face the consequences of poor responsibility. Massive immigration, legal and illegal. A displacement of the local population, which combined with a cap on the minimum acceptable labor and the immense affluence that we've created here leaves those who are less skilled or less fortunate forever outside of the even escaping poverty, the corporate business. That means by which those who have can prosper, those who have not can endure what they have, and ever the machine of, of uh, commerce is taken away from the local and given to a more enlightened level, far away, where decisions can be made, ignoring the desires of the community. A federal education system whereby those at the top, those who believe themselves enlightened, may make decisions which also, much like the corporate system, trickle down to an individual community and affect them directly, whether they like it or not, whether they agree with the agenda being pushed or not. The sexual revolution, by which the proper duties and responsibilities of men and women regarding their interrelationships are absolutely abandoned and considered evil. Massive debts accrued 
in maintaining the ease and comforts that the people have become so used to now. Government subsidies of different industries choosing who wins and who loses based on the ability for them to lobby for power. Feminism, abortion, divorce, cohabitation, all consequences of the sexual revolution, all destructive to the traditions that we used to have, and now all traditions that may be hard to eliminate. Combined with this is homosexuality. Something that we may not consider a tradition at this point, but will not be removed, and in 20 years' time we will be fighting to ensure that it endures out of some belief in conserving it. What we preserve is not good. What we are trying to conserve is not good. Right? That great list. What do we want to conserve? What do we believe that we're conserving? We believe we're conserving rights, freedoms, responsibility, the ability to go out and, and risk to pursue happiness while given the confidence and assurity of life and liberty. These are the things we believe we're conserving, but we're not, because they are no longer traditions in America. It has been so long since it was actually possible to do so that I would argue we aren't anymore. A healthy desire to take care of those around us might make us desirous to help those less fortunate. But to forcibly redistribute income and preferentially redistribute it to those who are least responsible is not preserving any decent traditions, but is rather creating a new one and enshrining it. Enshrining it not because it is impossible to remove it, but because doing so would require a culture that actually values things which are impossible to value in that context. Balanced budgets, local charity, the ability of the individual to take care of themselves and the ability of a community to take care of their individual. These things are not possible, or at least highly improbable, given our current culture. The things we want to preserve are dead. The culture we want to preserve is long dead. What we look at is Christendom. Right, what, what we call Western civilization, the classical world, the fruits of the Renaissance. But it's not here, and it hasn't been for many, many, many years. Don't just look at the 60s, all right? Don't blame the boomers alone. What happened in the 1920s, right? What happened with, with long before that, there was rot. Now, yes, beginning with the 1920s and then moving into the 1960s. There were some major events that happened, but what caused those? What brought those about will require great introspection and simply believing that we need to conserve the principles of the good old days 
ignores the fact that the good old days got us where we are now, one way or another. That the people, if you blame other people for changing the culture, if you blame other people for bringing on this destruction, what makes you think that they wouldn't arise if we returned to it? And such a presumption is false as well, as I've covered in previous instances as, as spoken of by Tolstoy. The culture moves as the culture will, as the people move. That is what drives large-scale change. Not great individuals, not singular individuals, cultural rot at the family, local level is what drives it backwards up to society as a whole, to our political system. It is, it is local rot in every individual who has contributed to this. And, and ultimately, you know, it is, it is sin. But it is a, a movement away from any, any wholesome thing by every person that has led to the abandonment of that wholesome thing, if we presume that that wholesome thing existed in the past. So what are we trying to preserve? What are we trying to conserve? Conservative ideals must be brought back from, from many times ago, many, many days ago, if we are to maintain that name, that word. If the foundation is not correct, though, we will be building from some deformed creature, some false premises, and then we'll only be building a monster. If you truly want to rebuild a civilization that is, that is right, and I would argue at this point we must rebuild, then it we must find that foundation which is solid. Otherwise, it will inevitably reach the same point we are at now. And hastily. That is, that is, that is what is the greater concern, I would argue. For all cultures will inevitably devolve. Everything will fall in time. But we can build upon a more solid foundation. And in doing so, we may be able to build something that will endure the struggles, that will endure the hardships, that will come for it, at least a little longer. So I've decided I'm, I'd rather not use the word conservative anymore. Because the things we are trying to conserve have fallen by the wayside so far that we may as well consider them dead, functionally dead, in our culture as it is today. So here are a couple of words I'm going to use, potentially, in, in replace of conservative. One, a resurrectionist. This is a term that was used at times to describe grave robbers, but can also mean the following. A person who brings something to life or view again or revivalist, one who restores something disused. Now, I want to be very careful here. I'm, I'm arguing from a political standpoint for political revivalism, founded on the, the foundation of the values of Christendom. Not Western civilization, the West, the West is fallen. Honestly, if you look at the Eastern Europe, it is probably a more accurate representation of what we would aspire to. But I also want to be very careful 
regarding spiritual revivalism, because this is why I used the, the first word. Um, first of all, spiritual revivalism is not a very Lutheran idea. Uh, and, and given the baggage, it doesn't have any place there. But theologically, I could say I'm a resurrectionist very easily. First and foremost, because the third definition of a resurrectionist is someone who believes in the resurrection. Well, there you go. But I also want to bring to view again those things that may have fallen into disuse within the, the, the Lutheran, within the church, within the church. Um, the liturgy is not in disuse, but it is not valued as much as it is, as it ought to be. And there are uh, many people who, many people who are wiser than I, who are bringing that back into the focus. And I want to support them. I want to support their efforts to resurrect a proper Lutheran identity, a proper Christian identity. But to return to political states, we are a civilization adrift. Right? The strength we trusted in, the, the, the things we thought to conserve, have failed us, uh, whether by our own abandoning or by our refusal to understand the changes that were going on around us. We've allowed our communities to fall, our interactions to change, the way, we, the way we think about other people, the way we interact with other people, the way we spend our time is no longer what it used to be. Part of this is a technological revolution. Things have changed in that regard, but I do not believe that there is any technological revolution which can overcome a properly principled approach. We strayed from the path. We, we went away from it. We didn't have to, but we chose to. And now the very thought that we have to rebuild from the ground up, or not the ground, from the foundation up, does not enter our minds. We don't think that, hey, maybe, maybe it's not a matter of just tweaking a few things here or there. Maybe we have to rethink our worldview. Maybe we have to rethink the way we we view people, the way we interact with them, the way we spend our free time, the way we live. It's a hard thing to say, but right now we are not fighting for preservation. We ought not to fight for the preservation of what we have. We need to fight to redefine our culture, to rebuild it, to restructure it. Because when it comes to the culture war, which I spoke of before, we've lost as a result, we have become lost. And before we are lost, we must revive what came before. We must rebuild and keep only that foundation, that firm foundation, which comes before, and use the tools and materials from former days. Now, do not hear me saying that we need to progress or throw away everything that came before as well, right? Again, revival is the... is is restoring something that has become disused. I, I do f believe that in our haste to achieve some ultimate victory, we went out in the thought, as a culture, we went out thinking that we could achieve great things. We went out believing that the culture would, would bend to us and would allow us to do what we wanted, and, and it hasn't. Far to the opposite effect, we have now in created 
institutions that cannot be dismantled given our current mindset. And so we have to start again. We have to start again. There is a foundation, there's a solid foundation available to us that we can draw from. It is the foundation that endured for thousands of years in the midst of wars and trials and plagues and death that allowed people to hold to their faith and hold to their communities and grow and live and die, passing that on to their children. A worldview that, that does not indulge the vanities of our everyday existence as it is today. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity, right? So what shall we do? Eat and drink and serve our neighbor as best we can. That's something that we can return to. That's something that's not out of our reach. If we, if we go back too far, much further, not in terms of conserving, but in terms of reviving, and we begin that now, perhaps our children's children's children may actually reap some benefits rather than the inevitable consequences of the destruction that we are bringing upon them now. The cultural decay, the sexual confusion, the political strife, and now it's not all, all our fault who, who consider ourselves conservative, who believe in traditional values. It's not all our fault. But the idea that we just have to hold on to what was before won't work. Because what was before was greater than what is now, and we are simply living in its shadow. And even they were struggling to fight to regain something that was lost. And long ago, it wasn't even there, right? There is no golden age in the past. But there has always been a vision, a dream of what could be, of the better things, of good things that we need to struggle to try and achieve. And to think of us, ourselves, as conserving something good is insufficient. We must rebuild. Returning to the story, the elves in Gondolin were safe for many years safe from attack when they shut their borders. But Ulmo, Valar of Waters, sent a messenger to call them to either go to war with Morgoth to destroy him once and for all with the aid of men, or else to abandon their city of Gondolin and all take to the ships in the hopes that they might reach Valinor that such a mighty host could cross that great water and bring at last the message to the Valar, that they might come and end the works of Morgoth. Huor, son of Tuor, was this messenger, the cousin of Turin, a mighty man. Huor went to Gondolin. He was welcomed by the king, but his message was not. The elves refused to go to war, and they refused to leave for Valinor, and rather chose to sit in their homes, content with the peace they had. However, the king did sharpen the watch, and allow for the maintenance of long-forgotten ways, so that they might be vigilant against destruction. But as time passed and peace continued, they became content once more with their 
position in life. They became content with where they were, and Gondolin was betrayed. Morgoth destroyed it with balrogs and dragons, destruction and fire. The great waterfalls of Gondolin were turned to steam, but through that steam, some few of the elves escaped with Huor and began a long and perilous journey through the wilderness. A small remnant of that great fallen kingdom survived. They traveled and wandered long until they settled at last by the sea. There they found other refugees, for Gondolin was the last of the great strongholds that stood against the power of Morgoth. There by the sea, Huor raised his son, Erendil, who himself married a woman of another house, the daughter of Beren and Luthien, who had taken a Silmaril from the crown of Morgoth. And Erendil bore that Silmaril at long last across the sea to the shores of Valinor, and there presented the case of the elves before the Valar. He brought their plight and suffering to before them, and they pitied the elves and prepared at last for war. The war to end the works of Morgoth and to bring him bound in chains back to Valinor. And so at last was the suffering of the elves abated, due to the message brought by Erendil, son of Huor, son of Tuor, and father of Elros and Elrond who would later be known as Elrond of Rivendell. The reason I can no longer call myself a conservative is because any change I would be resistant to and any traditions I would preserve as such are not good. And I would rather define myself as someone who seeks the good things rather than something from the past. In the instances where there is nothing from the past to reference, I would rather seek those things based on proper principles and a proper understanding and seek to define something new so long as that thing was properly done. The principles and values I will take from the past as necessary. But to be resistant to change is insufficient at this point because change has already happened. Change has already occurred, and it's too late to try and hold on to what was before. Rather, we must seek to build something positive for our future, for our children's future, and for our children's 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 future. And perhaps, if we start realigning ourselves now, if we start looking for those ways that we can improve our lives and the lives of those around us by going back much beyond what is, much beyond the traditions that we have, but going back to the principles upon which they were founded and asking why those traditions existed and if that reason is good. If we question our foundational principles and the ancient ones that we choose are those that hold up to our rigorous testing, then perhaps we have hope to build something that future generations can seek to conserve. But if we start now by assuming that we are conserving something, 
than those future generations who will not have the same things that we do. As the world changes around them, we'll have no reason to look back at what we have built for them. We'll have no reason to look at what we have done and seek to conserve it. Do we really want to conserve the modern traditions that we have built up for ourselves, or do we want to preserve the ancient ones, the older ones, the ones that had a foundation in the principles we want to pass down and not in the principles that the changing world around us would have us believe?